Valley, um, in uh, eastern, western Turkey it would be, and as Paul was writing to them in the midst of opposition to their faith, as we'll see uh, this morning, I, I think God would have a special word for us in, in light of the day in which we live and the troubles in which we find ourselves as God's people. Uh, we might be, I trust, will be blessed by God's word here in Colossians chapter 2. So we're going to begin in verse 8 this morning, uh, Colossians 2 verse 8, hear now the word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, in which we can consider this morning. Uh, it is our great honor and privilege to know that our God continues to speak to us, that he has revealed himself to us uh, sufficiently, wonderfully, infallibly in his word. And it is our great privilege even now to come and consider this uh, portion of it. We pray that you would indeed work in our midst by your spirit and through what is said today, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. It was in 1871 uh, when the American archaeologist Heinrich Schleimann was excavating in Turkey. There he discovered, to the amazement of many people, the fabled and lost city of Troy. Found the ruins of its towers and its walls, which were 16 feet thick, and he also discovered that it was apparently clear that the city was burned. Of course, we have an ancient account of the burning of Troy from book two of the Aeneid. Uh, the Greeks, we learn from this book, had besieged Troy for 10 years and yet had no success against this great city. And so after 10 years of a failed siege, they decided perhaps it's time to change strategy. At the behest of Odysseus, they constructed immense wooden horse and hid their soldiers within. They then left the horse at the gates of Troy as an offering to the war goddess Athena. And then pretending to desert the war, the Greeks boarded their ships and set sail away. Troy, of course, was overjoyed with their military victory and, and in addition, quite a boon, this, this uh, gift of this uh, massive horse. They brought, of course, within their city walls. That night, while the Trojans slept secure in their triumph, Greek soldiers silently emerged from the horse, opened the gates of the city for their army, which had sailed back under the cover of night. The Trojans awaking to discover their city in flames. Though we learn from archaeology that there indeed was a city of Troy, and that it was indeed burned, most consider this story of this Trojan horse to be a fable. And certainly it's become proverbial in our day. Uh, we, we, we use the phrase a Trojan horse to talk about a great danger that is disguised as something that we gladly and warmly receive. I wonder if the Colossians are facing such a threat. Are they facing a Trojan horse? They 
indeed seemed to be, according to Paul, presented with this beautiful wisdom, indeed this captivating teaching, which Paul will warn them in chapter 2, that only leads to bondage and destruction. In fact, we've already seen Paul begin the warning. If verse 4, a number of weeks ago, we considered chapter 2 and verse 4, when Paul says, I say this uh, to you in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And so they come, and their arguments are indeed plausible. It's to these individuals that now Paul returns here in verse 8, when he writes, see to that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. There are those who want to take them captive. And, and so I think we, in all the, putting these ideas together, we can kind of understand Paul's exhortation, which we considered last time we were in Colossians. Remember in verse 6, he says, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue in him. So walk in Jesus. Be rooted in Jesus. Be built up in Jesus. Establish your faith in Jesus. And we can now realize why Paul is exhorting them to remain in Jesus, because there are others who, according to verse 8, seek to take them captive. The Colossians are being harassed by false ideas that threaten their new faith. Of course, such harassment, such danger has not left us, has it? I think we too can find great uh, parallels and great teaching here in the passage in front of us as we live in this post-Christian age, as we live in this pluralistic age, we also must ensure that we are not taken captive by deceitful ideas. Of course, we're not exactly sure what the deceit is, what the, and in particular, what they're facing in Colossae. We, 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 the Colossians know what they're, they're facing. Paul, therefore, doesn't review it. He just kind of gives them the solution to it. And so when we read Colossians 2, which is largely written in refutation to these false ideas, it's like listening to one half of a phone conversation. And we can only left to kind of guess what the other person is saying. We could tell that in their false teaching, we'll see later in Colossians 2, there's some kind of Jewish element to it, some type of legalism to it. And then there's also this kind of pagan mysticism, a worship of angels, an encountering of, of visions that, uh, that they're uh, enduring. And so we're not exactly sure what type of false teaching it is, but regardless, we know what Paul is going to explain is that fullness and freedom is ultimately found not in these things in which they're praying before you, but it's found in Christ. It's found in Jesus. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Don't turn away from Jesus as we face this opposition to Christianity. And so we'll consider uh, how Christianity is opposed today from these verses in three steps. First of all, we'll begin with a danger to avoid in which we'll spend the bulk of our time there in verse 8. And then uh, we'll move on to step 2, a deity to affirm, and lastly, an abundance to appreciate. And so we begin, you note verse 8, that there is a danger to avoid. Once again, we read, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So people are out to capture you, Paul says. The same word that's used here is used in other places in ancient Greek literature as a slave dealer. A slave dealer seeking to snatch away victims. And so the people, in other words, who are coming against the Colossians are not kind of like honest people but mistaken. They're not well-meaning but confused. 
They are indeed enemies who seek to ensnare you. So Paul says, listen, make sure no one sneaks up behind you, throws a bag on your head, uh, shoves you in a van, and takes you to a place you'd rather not go. Don't be taken captive. And so it might, might be helpful for us just to kind of, uh, at this point, have a very quick point of application. Right? Please understand, Christian. I hope you do. I hope you are aware that there are enemies to your faith. There are enemies who do not want you to follow Jesus. I hope you are aware that you are in the midst of a battle. Because you're not going to win the battle if you don't know you're fighting it. You're not going to defend yourself if you don't know you are being attacked. And so if I might just state the obvious as I did with my children last night. Netflix is not trying to encourage you to be a stronger Christian, right? Instagram is not trying to get you to grow in grace and virtue. Hollywood, Fortune 500s, the university system, our culture, politics is not trying to push you closer to God. That throughout our lives, we are continually and perpetually bombarded with people who have alternative messages. They come to us with counterfeit ways. They offer to us counterfeit gods. They hold out to us counterfeit ambitions. And indeed, they perpetuate counterfeit ideas. Be on guard. Be aware. They seek to capture you. In fact, Paul says there... The very uh, begins verse 8 by saying, see to it, see to it. It's the King James that translates this. I think it's helpful here. Beware, the King James says, lest any man spoil you. Beware of this. I, I think of, a, of a, the, you know, the sign that perhaps you've seen, beware of dog. What does that mean? It means that these people have a dog and it doesn't like you. Okay? And so you, you need to beware. Incidentally, I've never seen a sign that says beware of cat. Okay? Uh, because, of course, we know why. Cats are useless. Okay? I, I, have, I, I have seen the sign that says, beware, uh, forget the dog, beware of my wife. Okay? That's what we have in our house. All right? Um, she's the one you need to look out after. Uh, I was, uh, for a while, ministering and pastoring in southern Virginia, a very rural county. Uh, there was not a stop, stoplight in the entire county. That's how rural it was. I remember early on in that ministry. Uh, being asked to call upon an individual, and uh, I walked upon their home, and it was a, uh, uh, a single wide, with, uh, the windows were boarded up with cardboard, and there was a sign there as I, this young pastor came to knock on this man's door, and the sign actually on the front door uh, said, trespassers will be shot, survivors will be shot again. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of you, you chuckle. You hope it's funny. I'm not sure he meant it to be funny, to be perfectly honest, after getting to know him. Paul says, be, beware. Beware of these ideas. Beware of these teachers. They seek to do you harm. This is not a call to dialogue. This is not a call to debate. This is not a call to sit down and let's exchange ideas. You are to beware of them. And so let me just speak for a moment to you, 
some of the younger people amongst our congregation, you who will one day walk onto a college campus, you are head to, headed to the university, and maybe you will have the great privilege to go to a, a, a Christian university, or perhaps even what, what is we call a historically Christian university. Maybe there's a big, beautiful chapel right in the middle of that university, and you think, you know, I think I'll take a religious studies course. That sounds interesting. Oh, intro to New Testament. Well, I think I will study that. And how many young conservative believers have lost their faith in those classrooms as they failed Paul's, to heed Paul's exhortation to beware, to call. He's calling us to stand back. He's calling us to steer clear. He's calling us, I think, in some contexts to run away. Listen, when you see a slave dealer coming by seeking to take you captive, looking for slaves, what do you do? You run away. In fact, Paul will go on to tell us the, the, the net in which they seek to capture you with, the rope in which they'll tie you up. Notice he says in verse 8 that no one takes you captive by philosophy. By philosophy. Now you might be thinking, yeah, okay, I don't like philosophy. Um, philosophy, as one has said, is when they turn solutions into problems. Okay? Uh, an another said philosophy is a route uh, of many roads leading from nowhere to nothing, okay? Um, that's not, I don't think, what, uh, what Paul is dealing with here. He's not, Paul's not saying, hey, beware of intellectual inquiry. Philosophy, by the way, just means, the meaning of philosophy, the word, it means love of wisdom. So philosophy, I think what Paul uses, it's closer to our, kind of our word, we might use worldview, or even, we might even use religion. In fact, Paul's not even concerned with philosophy in general. He's concerned with this philosophy in particular. It's bad because it's hollow and misleading. Notice what he, how he describes it there in verse 8. Empty deceit. It's em so in other words, this is not a frontal attack. This, the danger is the seduction. The arguments are a Trojan horse. They look wonderful. Isn't this great? Who what doesn't want a big giant horse on your front uh, lawn? And yet inside it's filled with death. Or if I might change the metaphor, it's like a fish hook. Right? It looks like a tasty morsel. It looks wonderful. It looks delicious. And, and all of a sudden the, the fish bites upon it and realizes, no, it's not delicious. It's a hook. It's now in my mouth. And I'm now being yanked out of the place I want to remain. And so it is with false teaching. It resembles the real thing. It looks like it has an appearance of wisdom. It looks, it looks wonderful. And yet once it's taken in, we find that it is pulling us places we'd rather not go. And how many people do you know who at one time walked with Christ and professed Christianity and yet they fell into these ideas and now they have been pulled to a place where they uh, uh, thought they would never end up. It is empty, Paul says, and deceptive. This, this today, I think, is obvious to identify it, isn't it? I mean, today, uh, what, what, is, what is the language that you hear today? Is it not, uh, listen, we just want freedom. Don't we want freedom? Like, who doesn't want freedom? Or the other word that's often used is equality. Right? Don't you, don't you want equality? Isn't, it, I mean, isn't equality good? Don't we, isn't that what we're after? And this is what we're told today. You do realize that. We live in a day of religious relativism, which kind of has an appearance of wisdom, to be perfectly honest. Right? They just want to encourage you to find God in your own way. God's on top of the mountain. You take your path, I'll take my path. We'll meet at the top. Well, that sounds appealing unless Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And if he is Lord, he has told us there is no other way to God. And that all these other ways lead to destruction. Or we have the interfaith movement, don't we? Which seems wonderful, right? I mean, isn't it, isn't it, wouldn't it be good for us all just to get along and we can worship together? You've got Muslims and Hindus and Baptists and you know, you have the whole, we're all just kind of together. Isn't that, doesn't that sound great? It, unless Jesus Christ is Lord, and if he is Lord, he has forbidden us from worshiping other gods. Or we're told that marriage should be available to everyone. And well, that certainly sounds fair, doesn't it? I mean, and they were told, after all, it's not going to hurt us to extend the right to marriage to, to other individuals and all the rest. And this sounds wonderful and, and, and wise, unless, of course, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if he is Lord, he himself invented sexuality and he himself has graciously put up guardrails to keep us from swerving off into dangerous ideas. See, all these things seem wise, don't they? They seem very reasonable. Please understand, it's a, it's a fish hook. It's a Trojan horse. It's empty deceit. And therefore, it, this is why it's imperative that we know the Bible. It's why it's imperative that we are part of a local church committed to one another under pastoral oversight and mutual accountability. It's imperative that we know who Jesus is and what he has done. So when people come to the door or they are on your television or on your computer screen or, or on the radio or in the classroom or, God forbid, standing even in the pulpit, we have the ability to say that is empty and deceptive, and I will take no part of it. I think this is why Paul is laboring. I mean, we saw this in the end of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, listen, I labor, I'm suffering. Why? I think it was verse 28. He says, so that I may present every man mature in Christ. I want you to grow up in Christ. I want you to remain in Christ. I want you to continue in Christ. And so we long for that here as Hamilton Baptist Church, that we be protected from very persuasive and reasonable deceit. In fact, Paul describes the trouble that is coming against them with three prepositional phrases, all there in verse 8. You'll uh, identify them. They all will begin with the word according. You see according there, mentioned three times in verse 8. He begins by saying that this deceit is according to human tradition. Human tradition, that is not according to biblical tradition, but human tradition. This is according to what humans think is wise. So I think the question we need to wrestle with is how do we understand what is good and how do we understand what is noble and how do we understand what is worth pursuing if we do not have a guide to direct us, if we do not have direction. God has, of course, given us direction in his word and he tells us what is good and noble and worthy of pursuit. And yet if we remove the guide what is left to determine for us what is good and what we should seek after? Well, the only thing is less, left is for us to do what seems best to us. Let's do what's best to us. Let's do this according to human wisdom, human tradition. Let's do what is good in our own eyes. Now, if you ever want to see what a culture looks like that embraces this idea, we're going to do what is good in our own eyes, all you have to do is read the book of Judges and you'll see what they do when they do what's good in their own eyes. And it is not a pretty picture. It says according to human tradition. Secondly, it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. 
Now, you may have a different translation there. There are actually translations all over the page on, on, on this one. I, I read one commentary, um, and this phrase, elemental spirits, that, that, just that phrase, I read 10 pages on that phrase with 31 footnotes. This is a very difficult uh, phrase to translate um, because it has so many meanings open to us. It could mean, as maybe your translation puts it, and the elemental principles of the world, like fire and, and water and earth is how they would understand it in that day. What are the very kind of makeup of the world? It could mean the elemental principles of the world, like the ABCs and the one, two, threes and musical scales, kind of the very basic understandings of knowledge. But the ESV, my translation, puts it this way, and I think I prefer this translation, the elemental spirits of the world. That is a reference to spiritual beings. I think that's the best way to understand this in light of the, uh, the rest of the book of Colossians. We've already seen in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus created all things, and then Paul says, and when I say all things, I'm including, remember he said this, authorities and powers and dominions and rulers. Right? I want to be specific in saying, when I say all things, he is a creator over these spiritual beings. We'll find out in verse 18 that they are worshiping angels. And so this seems like something is going on in this uh, culture regarding these spiritual beings. Perhaps the false teachers, as some have suggested, are tempting Christians to have an allegiance to these, to these spiritual beings. Right? And they're most likely not coming and arguing for them to reject Jesus. They're not, they're, they're, they would most, most definitely say, listen, you, you can't be saved without Jesus. You need Jesus. But in, in addition to Jesus, you need these spiritual uh, beings, these spiritual blessings, these spiritual experiences, these spiritual fulfillments, and you get them elsewhere. Jesus, of course, is essential. We wouldn't deny that. But in order to thrive, in order to be blessed, you need help from others. Uh, the, perhaps they would make an argument like this, that, you know, of course, Rome is ruled by the Roman emperor, just as Jesus rules the world. But the Roman emperor really doesn't care what's going on in your particular life, in your particular day, right? He's got bigger things to deal with. And so, listen, we, the, these, these spiritual beings, these local uh, spirits, they are directly involved in our lives. And they help us with things like illness and luck and marriage and business and all the rest. And so what we need to do is curry their favor uh, for day-to-day -day living. You say, well, that sounds very interesting, sounds very uh, old-fashioned. I'm glad things like this don't happen today. Well, I would suggest to you that they do. That there are, of course, many... Christian traditions that seem to emphasize this idea of a guardian angel and communing with this angel. There are other Christian traditions that, that ha have elevated saints to this status, that uh, if you want to sell a house, well, you, you make an offering, you pray to this saint, or because this saint's in charge of real estate, I guess, and if you, 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 you want to travel safely, there's another saint who's in charge of the highways or traveling, and so you appeal to this saint, right? It's the same idea that I think what's going on here. In fact, you travel the world, you'll see this all over the world. You go to Ghana, as many of you have, and you'll learn that there are Christians there, many Christians, and some of these Christians actually go to pagan fetish priests in order to curse their enemies. 
You go to Vanuatu, as I have, and you'll, find, you'll meet with Christians who every night pour out a libation to their ancestors and refuse to speak in what's called a taboo place. You go to Azerbaijan, as I have, and you'll find above every door in every house is a broken teapot in order to ward off what they consider the evil eye. Or you go to America, as I have, and you will find people with good luck charms and dream catchers and things like that. I was recently asked about a, maybe about a year ago to come to a home and speak a blessing over every room in the home because someone had cursed the home as if I had some type of blessing power, as if people are able to provide these curses. I mean, what if I told you uh, that you are an immortal spirit being called a thetan and you actually trillions of years ago helped make the universe? And at some point, you and all the other Thetans thought it best to inhabit bodies. And the longer you did that, sadly, you forgot that you were divine. And make matters worse, there's an evil being, evil tyrant called Xenu, who sent tormenting Thetans to attach to your souls, which is why you have depression and anxiety and evil thoughts. And so the goal for you is to remove these attached Thetans to your soul through a process of good works, You'll be liberated eventually from these evil thoughts, depression, anxiety, and eventually sp ascend spiritually back to the deity you are. You, if I told you that, you would say you're out of my mi your mind. No one would ever believe that. Well, I'm sad to say that 50,000 Americans do and millions of people do around this world in a false faith called Scientology. Okay? Why would you follow such a religion, you might ask? Well, because it offers fullness and it offers healing and offers hope and offers meaning. These things are real. They are deceiving people. Now you might say, well, that's the fringe. I'm not going to give myself to that. Okay, perhaps it is. But spirituality is not on the fringes in America. America is increasingly becoming post-Christian and at the same time increasingly spiritual. So as, as this land turns away from our Christian roots, don't think that they're replacing it with atheism. They're replacing it with spiritualism. The New York Times just about three weeks ago uh, reported that 20% of Americans, 20, one out of five Americans have consulted a fortune teller. And this, this is just growing in the article entitled, Using a Spiritual Director to Help Guide Your Way. We read, according to the New York Times, last spring after a divorce, Kadera Ingram needed someone to talk to. Specifically, she wanted to be able to speak about spirituality in the bigger picture of her life. Though Miss Ingram, 33-year-old uh, government contractor, is a Christian, she, is, she isn't a member of a church. So she hired Susan Painter Cass, a spiritual director, to talk about what she was experiencing, including raising her six-year-old son in a pandemic in a time of unrest. The article continues saying, in some of the sessions, Miss Ingram talked about her dreams, and Miss Painter Cass would help her analyze them. In others, Ms. Painter Cass would encourage her to go outside and take my shoes off, Ms. Ingram said, and put my feet on the ground just to reconnect with my center. The end of the article concludes, for some, speaking, seeking spiritual connection results in a hybrid approach, end quote, a hybrid approach. This is sometimes called syncretism. This seems to be what's happening in Colossians, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this over here, a little bit of that over there. 
Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, says syncretism is when we take biblical Christianity and say we can mix in a bit of something else. A dash of New Age here, a Hindu goddess over there, and the idea of incarnation, reincarnation that we think is cool. And of course you could go on and say, I like stained glass, Christian stained glass, and I like certain kinds of music, end quote. One pastor calls this Build-A-Bear religion, right? I'll take a little bit of this, put a little bit of this. My neighbor has, has embraced this. A little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Christianity. I'm going to kind of put it all together. It's like a big buffet. I'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of this over there. I'm telling you, it is hollow and deceptive. And you ought to beware as you are constantly encouraged to embrace something like this. Thirdly, Paul tells us that this is not according to Christ, which is perhaps the most troubling of all. Right? If you're adding to Jesus, it's not according to Jesus. And again, I, 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 I undoubtedly think what they were saying is, you need Jesus certainly. Yes, of course Jesus. But you, you also need this over here for this to work. Right? You need this thing and this thing and this thing and Jesus. And when you start beginning to say, well, I need this and this and this, you begin to eclipse Jesus from your sight. And usually, by the way, in our day, I was talking to the elders about this on Thursday night, in our day, the thing that we add as Americans is often uh, we, we call security, which what we mean is money. Right? I need Jesus and I need money right, in order to have the life that I want to have. That's why I'm so thankful that Dave Murray and Craig Sweeney are even this, this morning at, during our second service are going to be teaching a biblical stewardship Sunday school class in order to help us understand these ideas. I think the Colossians must have thought of their lives in terms of buckets. I got my eternal salvation bucket and I need Jesus for that, but I, but I also have provision bucket and satisfaction bucket and happy marriage buckets and and I need other things for that. And Paul is saying, no, you need to understand Jesus is the whole bucket. Right? Put him first, and he takes care of everything. Because once you have Jesus, you have all you need, for all the fullness of God is found in him, as we turn to secondly, and we'll move much quicker at this point, the deity to affirm. The deity to affirm. Note what he says in verse 9. For in him, uh, the in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So how do we stand against these deceitful ideas that seem reasonable, that seem wise, maybe even seem moral? We stand by having a strong connection with Christ and understanding who Christ is. You notice the very first word in verse 9, 4, right? These people want to take you captive. Right? They're out after you. And then he connects this, that warning in verse 8 with verse 9 and really following all the way through verse 15 as he unfolds once again the glories of Jesus and the redemption that Christ provides. In other words, how do we spot a fake? How do we recognize the counterfeit? We do so by, by, by becoming familiar with the genuine article, namely Jesus. And we, of course we learn about him in verse 9 as we'll continue to learn that in him all the fullness of God dwells in his body. In other words, that Jesus is God in the flesh. In Jesus, God is decisively known, completely known, completely understood. You say, I want to see God. Okay, great. That's a good desire. Go look at Jesus. You cannot get more of God than what's found in Jesus. 
all the fullness of God is in him. And so this, I think, is in contrast to these spiritual uh, beings that Paul's dealing with here. He says, don't, never mind them. Jesus is God. He's fully God. And he is all of ours. And so you put all this together, and I was helped. Again, I shared this with my, my children last night. Uh, sometimes I find these biblical paraphrases, though I never teach from them, I find them helpful to kind of get my, uh, the ideas together. One biblical paraphrase uh, writes, uh, according to this passage, watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through empty traditions of human beings and empty superstitions of spirit beings. But that is not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in him so you can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. I'm helped by that. I think we need to understand that anyone who offers you, hey, I have the key to deeper knowledge. I have the key to deeper deliverance. I have the key to deeper power or deeper experience through a means other than Christ is a danger to avoid. All the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. In fact, we're, we're familiar with that idea already. I mean, just look back in chapter 1 and verse 19. Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's almost the exact same language. Paul returns, of course, he just keeps bringing us back to Jesus. Let's keep going back to Jesus. We're going to keep banging that, that drum. He keeps talking to us, talking about Christ, as we should and as we must. So, of course, you know I've been blessed by the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, Great Baptist preacher, perhaps the greatest English-speaking preacher of the uh, 20, uh, 19th century. Uh, he was uh, preaching his first sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle following the immense ministry of a preacher named Gill, who was utterly brilliant. I mean, and so they wonder, and Spurgeon was about 20 when he started this ministry, and they wonder what this preacher boy is going to do following the eminence of, of Gill. And Spurgeon stood to address the congregation for the first time, and he said, if I am ever asked what is my creed, it is Jesus Christ. And I think that would be good uh, kind of summary for Paul. Paul says, my creed is Christ. We're just going to keep going back to Christ. And in, for in Christ, all the fullness of God that was pleased to dwell bodily. And as amazing as verse 9 is, we'll just read verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule. And authority, as we turn lastly to an abundance to appreciate. An abundance to appreciate. You have been filled in him. Who's him? Him is the one who is, has all the fullness of God in him. So the one who has all the fullness of God has now filled you, Christian. And, and uh, to be honest, I, <laughs> I sat in my office just kind of think, what does that mean? I mean... Uh, I, I don't even think we could plumb the depths. I read books after books. What does it mean that I'm filled in Christ who himself is the fullness of God? It is, I think, beyond our, our comprehension to wrap our minds around. If, if, if we're filled with him who's the fullness of God, what then is missing? That something lesser can supply. What is it that this thing's going to give you or that thing's going to offer you? 
I mean, they, they claim, listen, you could have fullness with this or fullness with that. We offer spiritual fullness. We offer, listen, we got the full gospel over here. We got like three quarters gospel. Come to us, we got the full gospel. And Paul counters that and says, you have all the abundance in Christ. You don't need to look anywhere else. You're filled with it. You know, you know I think about it like Thanksgiving and, and after when you're, you know, you, you know when you're done eating on Thanksgiving? I, the, I, I realize I'm done eating when the, ple- the pleasure of the next bite is, will be passed by the pain and discomfort that the bite will bring. Okay? I don't know if that's, so once that calculus is reached, okay, that's when I stop eating. Right? In other words, you push away from the table and you are full. You're full. And at that point, what if someone comes by and they offer you your favorite food? Hey, or, or, we forgot to bring out the lobster. Right? Oh, well, you know, here, here's the chocolate, you know, brownie sundae. And what, what do you say at that point? You who might be incredibly tempted by that at any other time, what do you say at, at, after Thanksgiving eating? You say, get that away from me. I don't want any part of it. Why? Because you're full. See, Paul says we are so full with Jesus that when the world comes with its little spoonful of this or a cup full of that, we say, no, thank you. I'm full. I'm filled with Jesus. Oh, don't you want to consider our ideas, right? Don't you want to think about it? Uh, 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 No, thank you. I'm full. Well, don't you want to look at this illicit picture? No, thank you. I'm full. Don't you want to share this gossip? No, thank you. I'm full. Don't, don't you want to keep your tithe and spend it upon yourself? No, thank you. I'm full. Don't you want to hold that grudge and keep licking those wounds and bitterness? No, thank you. I'm full with Jesus. That offers me nothing. I have everything I need with Jesus. I have no room for your nonsense. Get it away from me. Christ becomes, as Paul is telling us, the entire world for us. He says in the book of Philippians, for me to live is Christ. That's my life. In fact, look what he says here in chapter 3 and verse 4. When Christ, I love this phrase, Who is your life? He doesn't say Christ who brings you life, though that's true. And he doesn't say Christ who leads to life, though that's true. He says this Christ is your life. And you are filled with him. In fact, he who is my life, he who has filled me, according to verse 10, rules over all. As you see, he ends this verse saying, who is the head of all rule and authority. That Christ reigns supreme over everything and over everyone. That he delivers us from every power, whether visible or invisible, that would make some kind of claim upon our lives. And so we don't need to look to this or to that in order for our life to go well. We look to Christ, who is unsurpassed in power, and I might hasten to add, unsurpassed in love. As we end our time this morning, just let your eyes fall down upon verse 13. We read, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven 
us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, as we'll consider in the weeks coming, God willing, in love for us, Christ goes to the cross in order to forgive our sins, in order to pay our debt, in order to wash us clean in his blood. And so as we end this morning, I simply want to ask you, as I do every Sunday, have you been forgiven? Has your debt been paid? Christ went to the cross, according to verse 14, in order to pay the debt of sinners. We access that payment as Christ dies as our substitute. We access that forgiveness, that salvation by faith. And repentance. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So everything I said this morning all hinges upon this reality that Christ is yours by faith. He can be even now as we pray. Father, we are thankful that we have Jesus, that we are filled in Jesus. He who is all the fullness of God in him has filled us. What a great honor and joy it is to know that we don't, he's just not part of us. He has filled us completely. He is our life for us to live as Christ. He is to be preeminent in all things. And it's in light of who Jesus is that we pray that we would indeed be protected from those who would seek to deceive and to take us away. And of course, all of us, I think, here are thinking, well, of course, I won't be deceived. And yet, how many have said that? And have found themselves so. And so will you not let us to be lazy in our vigilance. May we be aware. May we see to it that we are not taken captive. And those whom we love are not, are not seduced away. And we pray for those who have been perhaps captive by other ideas. Maybe even those here this morning or watching on the live stream. And perhaps you would help them even now see that they have given themselves over to lies and false ideas, that true salvation is found in Jesus and in him alone. May they receive Christ by faith, turning from their sin, calling out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I trust in Jesus. He is mine. For we ask him in Christ's name. Amen.